American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Public monuments represent another important language in which the myths and the arguments about the war have been presented. And they're really a vast physical archive that is very different than most of the materials that you've been discussing so far. Um, they are colossal, three-dimensional, solid objects that are still with us today. They are historical objects, but we could interact with them today and consider what to do with them today. So they are kind of like uh, giant hulking time machines that are among us. And, we experience them in an embodied way by walking around them and among them. Also, um, the people who made them really took a long view, very different than newspaper illustration, for instance. They wanted the earliest ones to be cathartic shrines, but they really intended to send a serious, indelible, immutable, eternal message to future generations about what they thought about the war. And um, so they very deliberately used these um, monuments as symbols to write and rewrite the history of the war. And some of the very same groups were involved in writing history books and history texts, and they saw these things very similarly. They were so expensive, and the process of making them was such a lengthy one that rarely were they the product of the, the single individual's work. Uh, they were made by groups and committees, and they had to negotiate over time, maybe decades, many things. <coughs> One, if you're going to raise money, was it best used by making a monument, or should you dedicate it to a school or a veteran's home or something that would help people? Two, how do you raise money and how much do you raise? What would the venue, what's the most appropriate venue for the monument? Should there be a competition for the design or should you come up with a concept as a group and commission the sculptor? Or, and most highly volatile often, what were the words that should be upon the monument? What's the nature of the dedication ceremonies be? And who would speak and march and sit on the stage? So their goals in constructing these monuments over time changed. Many of them were erected 30 and 40 years after the war. The earliest ones, focused on the respectful interment of the dead. As the decades passed, they shifted to more ideological celebrations, accompanied by parades and veterans' reunions. And um, later, they are often discussed as also engendering sectional reconciliation, as the blue and the gray sometimes join together at dedication ceremonies, celebrating shared values about human valor, suffering, endurance with these monuments. And the peak of the monument building was actually at the turn of the century or after the turn of the century. They were dedicated through the 20s, and they're still, till recently, um, being dedicated. But the great wave ended with World War I. A number were dedicated during World War I. Uh, so there were a great diversity of stories. And uh, we can look at patterns. We can look at case studies. But um, what I want to say today is that one thing I'm certain about is that they were very meaningful. They might have distorted certain truths, twistified certain truths, but they meant a lot to the people who were included, the people who were excluded. 
and they made great sacrifices to build them. And secondly, they exude an air of innocence and earnestness, but there was nothing innocent about them. They were, they were intended to deliver a specific message. Also, I'd like to mention the context. This was a time, there had been very little, uh, pub, very few public monuments erected in the United States before the Civil War, relatively speaking. And this was a time between the Civil War and World War I that American public sculpture came of age. Uh, an era internationally where we talk about monumania or statue mania. In order to get respect, you had to have a statue if you were a philosopher or a gynecologist or whatever, <laughs> you had your statue. Uh, so we've participated in that phenomenon in our own regionally distinctive manner. And uh, it was really just before 1870 that the first American artists went to France to train in the Beaux-Arts manner. And we began to develop, after the war, our quarry and bronze foundry industries. So they all, they all went hand in hand. And uh, talk about the American Renaissance aesthetic movement and the City Beautiful movement. All those, all those things participated in this monument building. So my plan today is to give you an overview of some of the stages and themes of these monuments. Construction is probably going to take uh, most of this hour because I got overly excited. So the, the, first, <laughs> the first monuments were actually erected beginning in the 1860s, literally during the war. And the earliest ones were generally found in cemeteries, especially in the South, where the Ladies Memorial Associations often took charge of decorating the graveyards. Many of the earliest were non-figurative, like the one you see at the right, which were really not distinctly different from things uh, erected at uh, Revolutionary War battlefields, uh, perhaps, uh, mostly in stone, obelisks, or broken columns. But quickly, especially in the north, you begin to see the uh, first single-figure monuments of the common soldier, which is a new form of American memorial. And here you see uh, one of the earliest ones, Randolph Rogers Sentinel, which was, he was an American working in Rome, and he was um, commissioned to make this sculpture in around um, 1860, I think it was finished in 1864, and erected in the Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati. So the Cincinnati citizens commissioned him to make it. He made it, it was cast in Munich because there really was not a place to cast it otherwise. Uh, and then it was shipped to the United States. So it was placed there probably a little after the war. The mo one of the most influential ones is Martin Milmore's Soldier Monument, which is standing still in Forest Hills Cemetery in Roxbury near Boston. And this statue was first exhibited at Boston City Hall before it was installed in the cemetery in 1868. And this is what a newspaper said, the Boston Evening Transcript, quote, it deservedly attracts much attention from the throngs of people who are constantly passing through. The young soldier is in a reverie over the graves of his comrades who have met that fate which he feels may at any moment be the price he too must pay for his devotion to his country. Milmore came up with this highly influential model that was, was certain things, it was not certain things. It was not triumphant. It didn't gloat about um, victory. Uh, it embodied rather a kind of sadness and reverie and loss and very human feelings of the citizen soldier. 
who at the same time was disciplined and was calm and in control of his complete undamaged body. Uh, and so uh, all those things are there. In a way, trauma is denied in this memorial, as it is in virtually every Civil War memorial. And I'll just point out that um, most of these ones that are in the cemetery, there is a grassy area around so that functions can be held, uh, so that uh, veterans can gather. Or, and so on this one, around the fence, there are the names of the um, others who served from Roxbury. And it says on the monument, erected by the city of Roxbury in honor of her soldiers who died for their country in the rebellion of 1861-65. Another early monument by the same artist, Martin Nomore. Uh, he was an Irish-American immigrant who worked with his brothers. This is this, this Sphinx, which is a civil, which is a war memorial erected in Mount Auburn Cemetery in uh, Cambridge. And this is the one that was actually uh, sponsored by one individual, Jacob Bigelow, who was the founder of the cemetery, and who decided that no one else was going to do it. So he was just going to go ahead and, and fund this. And he had very strong beliefs. So here you have a very definite statement of the meaning and the results of the war on, in English on the, this side and in Latin on the other side. American Union preserved, African slavery destroyed by the uprising of a great people by the blood of fallen heroes. And so here you have an image that is truly carved in granite, very hard material. It's intended to stand for the idea of eternity, that the sands, the desert, and the sands of time cannot wipe out this memorial to a rightful cause. <coughs> and it was described in the Atlantic Monthly as a peculiarly American memorial, which might make you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and can you see one of the reasons why at the very top? <laughs> the American eagle on the, coming off the head, headdress, the star on the chest, and the features of the person, like the features of the soldier, were described as particularly Euro-American Euro features. The earliest memorial to Admiral David Farragut, the Navy, Union naval hero, who died in 1870, was at his grave here at New York's Woodlawn Cemetery, which is way up in the Bronx. And it was the site, again, for annual commemorative gatherings. It, it, was, it stands in the middle of a grassy circle, again. And um, so there's room for people to gather. It's probably intended to be a broken ship mast, I think, uh, with a shroud on the top and then symbols like a compass and naval symbols below. And as you know, the government established national cemeteries uh, during and after the war in the South, where Union soldiers, Union bodies fell. And also, President Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, contributed in effect to significant government efforts to draw attention to the caring, the care for union bodies in a very more systematic way than had been done in any previous war. The Confederates had to bury their own, but the government buried, took care of the union largely. After Lincoln died, a huge mausoleum at Springfield, Illinois was erected to him, designed by sculptor Larkin Mead. And although I think it was completed in stages, it was dedicated in 1874. Robert E. Lee was, in the meantime, was remembered most significantly in the early years in a special chapel at Washington and Lee College in Lexington, Virginia, where he served as president after the war. 
and he is depicted in this recumbent statue by Edward Valentine, who was a, a favorite Southern sculptor, as this sort of chivalric knight, a warrior aristocrat who led the Confederacy with valor and without shame. And it still is a shrine um, that's visited frequently. Very quickly in the north and a bit more slowly in the southern landscape of defeat, the primary sites for Civil War monuments shifted to public spaces, such as the courthouse squares and parks, where hundreds of soldier monuments were erected. Usually they're on key sight lines, so they become a part of a city's distinctive identity. And, and in fact, they, part of the reason for building them was an economic one to create, to rebuild cities that had been damaged to stand for a new society. They were often remarkably similar in the north and the south, as you see here, with the details of the uniform sometimes being one of the major differences. They are often erected by monument dealers who would sell these monuments. They could be in stone, zinc, bronze, two small, two communities, for as little as one to $3,000, maybe up to $10,000 very different than the more elaborate memorials we're going to see later, but raising one to $3,000 still took a great deal of doing at that time. And usually they have this, they have a rifle, the technology of modern warfare, and, and often they stand at parade rest. More elaborate, more expensive soldier and sailor monuments uh, were planned on state capital grounds or in the most visible spaces. So again, uh, this is Martin Milmer's most major monument, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument on the Boston Common, which um, cost $75,000. And he went to Rome to make it. It's a soldier's monument, but it has an allegorical figure, the genius of America, atop a very tall column. <laughs> and in the middle rank of the low, the bronze figures are a soldier, a sailor, allegories of history, and peace. And then the four female figures are allegories of east, uh, north, south, east, and west. And here's a similar kind of monument erected quite a bit later in Raleigh to the Confederate dead, uh, which has a cavalryman and an artilleryman uh, as the auxiliary figures. So these kinds of monuments were made through till World War I, uh, when in the 20s attention shifted from the Yankees and the Rebs to the Doughboy. <laughs> the, the money for them was largely raised from individuals in subscription <clears throat> drives, perhaps with the locality or the state providing the land, some sort of public land, and then maybe another grant to fill out the funding. It varied, you know, there was a great deal of variation in terms of how it was raised, but often, especially in the beginning, it was individual fund drives through dances and dinners and theatricals and all those kinds of things. As you know, the end of the political reconstruction in 1877 and the return of democratic control began a new phase of activism, especially, I guess, in the South, but with a forceful response in the North, symbolic response in the North as well. We had the promulgation of what came to be known in the South as, as the lost cause, this ideology about an explanation about the war being fought uh, as a war for state sovereignty. This was the time that the United Confederate Veterans was founded in 1889, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, 1894, the peak membership of the GAR, the Grand <coughs> Army of the Republic, 1890, so the high point of commemorative activities, again, around the turn of the century. 
In fact, one study that I did, I found that between 1905 and 1912 was the peak dedications of Confederate memorials. There were already a few portrait monuments, but in the 1880s and later, you find these really costly grand scale memorials, primarily to generals and to presidents and the military officers often on horseback as in the long European tradition. In big cities, we also find that they are done, they are the work of more professional sculptors, artists whose work will appear in museums in the Paris Salon and the National Academy of Design are making these kinds of memorials. And the South has its favorite sculptors and the North had its Augustus St. Gaudens, John Quincy Adam Ward, and Daniel Chester French. I thought I would focus on a few works by St. Gaudens because he really is the most eminent um, sculptor of the Civil War and made his career uh, through his Civil War memorials. He is credited with his, um, now he worked with architects to uh, Stanford White and, and Charles um, McKim in creating a new kind of environmental memorial. Uh, he had studied in France um, <coughs> one of the earliest Americans to study in the Beaux-Arts manner. So he carried on this, but developed his own modifications. So no longer is this memorial on a high column where you have to look way up reverentially <laughs> at this model of valor, but it's in your space where you could sit and contemplate and interact. And he liked, he liked to incorporate a bench, or the Greek word is exedra, for the viewer to enter and sit upon. Farragut was his first, really that's how he came to fame, and really was seen as a extremely modern and innovative memorial. And so he has this natural, naturalistic pose where it's, he worked a lot, very, a long time. How could you have him standing as if he's standing on a ship, right? So he's captured it, and the wind is blowing, his coat is, is moving with the wind, and his, the space, uh, I'm sure he looked at, I'm not sure what he looked at, photographs or something, you know, together, uh, a true likeness of the space. But then um, they incorporated, the Gardens loved the tension between the real and the ideal, so they incorporated these Art Deco-ish ideal figures below that give it a supernatural quality. And famously, the Farragut Monument was cast for the propeller of his flagship, so that gave it another symbolic value. The flagship from who's rigging, he supposedly shouted, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. <laughs> um, also in New York, uh, 59th Street in the park is the Sherman Memorial, uh, sewing Sherman, marching through Georgia, bringing death and destruction to the stubborn South. And St. Gaudens had 18 sittings with Sherman to make a bust of his space, which is a really, beautiful, really amazing piece of work, actually. And that face, this grizzled, you know, case with all this character is incorporated upon this monument. But then this, this reality is combined with this ideal winged figure who is leading him on what can only be a righteous cause, right? you know, cause that was worth everything. And again, all the ugliness of war and the violence are, are not present in absence and glossed over. Um, and the horse is tromping upon a crushed uh, pine brow one of the symbolic things. Just mentioned that St. Gaudens was very, he was, he started as a cameo carver. He carried, he was a perfectionist about every aspect of detail. 
and he cared very much about the patina of his monuments, and he decided, he insisted and paid at his own cost to have this monument gilded. There are some French examples that he was, that he, uh, was interested in. He also thought it might protect it. All that gilding wore off over the years. You'll see many pictures of it without that. But in 1990, the city coughed up the money to regild it. But it's now, there's some controversy over how well the job was done, and it's fading <laughs> um, pretty rapidly. And I just brought in a picture of a Roman equestrian sculpture to Marcus Aurelius to illustrate how American sculptures of this period were really looking at classical ties. They were called, well, you might wonder why were they called why was it called the American Renaissance? So the equestrian statue of Roman times, the Renaissance sculptors adopted it, and then Americans and Europeans did in the 19th century. His two figures of Lincoln for the city of Chicago were justly famous as well. And I, I brought this to point out that it's not just the stock monuments, the monument dealers that uh, made many copies of things. In fact, there are 16 versions of this Lincoln, some of which I'm not sure if they're all uh, made by his estate. His widow was very interested in circulating his images, or some of them were made in his, during his life. But some of his reductions were sold at Tiffany's, places like Tiffany's, not, you know, not at stock monument dealers. And last year, there was this huge flurry because for the first time in a long time, one of these came on the private market. An elderly couple owned one, it was a 40-inch version, and decided to sell it. So curators from all over the country were flying to their home. <laughs> and you can now see that 40 introduction at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, <laughs> which has a fair amount of donors and money to acquire. <laughs> so um, and finally, the Shaw, which uh, Sarah and I were talking yesterday about. We agree, I think. <laughs> the, greatest, the greatest Civil War memorial uh, of all. St. Gaudens worked for 14 years on this memorial, and the the patrons despaired that he would ever finish it. He just didn't want to let go. Um, but finally, they took it away from him, literally. <laughs> literally, he was trying to change it at the last second. And it was finally dedicated in 1897. It's come down to us as his most living, the most living Civil War memorial, the most artistic Civil War memorial, and the only one, really, to incorporate in such an inspiring manner the experiences of black soldiers. It's now the official beginning point of the Black Heritage Trail in Boston. It was highlighted in the movie Glory. And it's been the subject of symposia and books. And it's about to be the subject of a special exhibition and a new catalog at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And the exhibition catalog, this made me laugh yesterday, is tentatively titled From Shadow to Substance. Didn't we look at a cartoon called From Shadow to Substance? From Shadow to Substance, the Massachusetts 54th and Augusta St. Gardens Shaw Memorial. And that's due to open in Washington on June 2013. And it will not only have archival images, but it's going to have um, contemporary artists' responses to this uh, memorial, uh, and I think maybe to the battle. So I think you pretty much all know the basic story. Um, the 54th was one of the first African-American regiments, and Shaw, the son of an elite abolitionist Boston Brahmin family, led, it, led his troops against very long odds to, um, in the battle at Fort Wagner. And his body was said to have been thrown in a common trench with those of his troops. So a very dramatic story that pulls at everyone's heartstrings. And I won't go into all of the 
various fundraising efforts. But we come to a point in 1883, and St. Gaudens was persuaded to take on the project by a committee of um, prominent white Bostonians. And he wanted, at this time he hadn't yet made his sermon, and he wanted to make an equestrian monument. There was a form that he wanted to put his own imprint on. And the family, as, as you may have read, um, opposed it. Brahmins have a certain modest strain. They, they don't want to, it's not right to be too ostentatious. <laughs> they, and they wanted to include reference to the regiment. So ultimately he came up, and you can see the stages, with this idea at the bottom of having him ride alongside his troops with an ideal figure above, which he insisted be part of the monument. And what was low relief ultimately became quite high relief. And as I said, he started as a cameo cutter, and he really understood this very complex form. So Shaw is practically in the round, and St. Gaudens, in this, just like his other ones, he, um, he modeled, uh, he had model, African models come to his studio, and there are many stories about that. But um, he, they were not veterans of the 54th, but he made the heads from actual people. And he, made them, he tried to have young people and old people, and uh, he really, really got into it. For somebody who I think didn't understand very much about it to start with, you know, it was he who was responsible for making the most artistic memorial and for honoring the African-American troops and giving them a humanity unprecedented in American art. At the unveiling in 1897, 65 veterans of the 54th marched, and they laid a wreath of lilies of the valley before the monument, and William James and Booker T. Washington spoke, and St. Gaudens sat on the stage. And he wrote later how moved he was by this whole experience. And he said, uh, quote, the impression of those old soldiers passing the very spot where they left for the war so many years before thrills me even as I write these words. They faced and saluted the relief with the music playing John Brown's body. They seemed as if returning from the war the troops of bronze marching in the opposite direction. So the bronze troops are marching as, as they left Boston to go to war, and apparently at the day of the ceremony, the soldiers were marching the other way. And the inscriptions on the back uh, honor the 54th, as well as the white officers and Shaw, but only the names of the white officers were placed on the back of the monument. And can you guess in what year the names of the black troops were added, those killed in action? 1981. And this, I think, is really interesting because after the Civil Rights Movement, at a time when Boston was in the midst of a busing controversy, great racial tensions, this monument was used for reconciliation, <coughs> literally. So what I'm trying to say is that they have a use today, they function today, and continue to be with us. And I think the same thing, I, I've never heard anyone uh, officially say this, but I think the same thing is true with the National Gallery of Art. They went to great lengths and great expense to acquire a plaster, a full-size plaster cast of the Shaw Memorial in Washington, even going to the point of having to rebuild the floor to hold up the weight of this thing. And it's because Rusty Powell, the director, wanted to have something for Washington audiences to identify with, because Washington is a majority black city, and there's this European art, and you know, so anyway, it's something that was very important for them to acquire, and they've done a lot with it. And they have heads, also heads of some of the black soldiers. 
I think you're going to be talking maybe a little later today about uh, Thomas Ball's Emancipation Monument, which was dedicated earlier in 1876. It was paid for entirely by freedmen. It's in the Lincoln Park, very near the Capitol in Washington, and there's a, another cast in Boston. But this um, makes an instructive and really highly complex comparison that might be uh, one of your a great classroom exercise. By the 1890s, there were blue and gray reunions were um, coming up to, you know, the getting close to the 50th anniversary of the war. Yeah, not 50th, 20, after the 25th anniversary of the war. I'm not good with numbers. <laughs> um, a number of things happened. There were, there were uh, reenactments at Gettysburg with both sides. There was 1905, Congress returned the captured Confederate flags to the South. McKinley in 1900 set aside a section of Arlington Cemetery for Confederate graves for the first time, which had been a bone of contention. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy was given permission to erect a Confederate memorial at Arlington Cemetery in this very symbolic spot. And the daughters uh, commissioned Ezekiel, Moses Ezekiel, a, southerner, a southern veteran uh, who was working in Rome to create this, this monument, uh, which shows an allegory of the South at the top, one hand on a plowshare or a plowstock, another hand holding a laurel wreath. And below it, uh, there are the shields of the seceding states and then a frieze with Minerva in the front and about three dozen figures. Can you see that uh, one of the groups is a, is a soldier uh, kissing his baby goodbye uh, who reaches out to him from the arms of his black mammy or his daughter hides in the mammy's full skirts. So Karen Cox has written about this memorial is that it was a memorial to reconciliation, but yet it still held many ideological statements in it. But one statement, one argument of the lost cause is that slavery was a benign institution, that uh, Southerners were uh, treated their, their servants uh, benevolently and that they were faithful. On the back of the monument, it says, not for fame or reward, not for palace or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty, as they understood it, these men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. President Wilson accepted this memorial on behalf of the nation. And after that, since then, Every president, every year, has sent a wreath on Memorial Day to this monument. And when Barack Obama was elected, it was proposed that he change this policy as the first African-American president. And uh, Kirk Savage, in fact, was one of those who wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about that. But Obama, um, being the diplomat that he is, continues to send this wreath, but he added one that he now sends to the African-American War Memorial in Washington. There were a few Southern efforts over the years to build uh, statues to black mammies or the faithful mammy, faith, me, the faithful male slave to buttress this lost cause litany. And uh, most of them were never erected. And, but in the last proposal, it was in the 1920s, the Daughters of the Confederacy proposed building a Black Mammy Monument in Washington, but it, it failed in Congress. This was also the period when the single soldier monuments began to be decried <laughs> as a blight upon the land. Um, but they were too much of a cookie cutter, they were, too, they, they were commercial, they were poor quality, according to critics, they lacked 
the important quality of uniqueness and originality. But I, I have to ask you, and we could talk about this, if that's true, why do they matter so much to each community? In fact, I think sometimes that the familiarity and the sameness meant something to people. We could think about that. Here's another example. I just want to just, I love this cartoon because it shows you that in this period, uh, you have to have a statue to everything. <laughs> um, also in the 1890s is the period when cities like New York and Washington found, founded uh, arts committees, the Commission of Fine Arts and the New York um, Art Commission that began to, it, after that, if you wanted to establish a monument on public ground, uh, you might need to have an expert panel review the standards of quality. And now I'm going to go really fast in the last few ones. <laughs> the monuments to women were one important theme of Southern memorials because protection of the Southern woman and the family was also one of the arguments of the lost cause. So this is one of the, one of the early ones. But there was a plan. Uh, that in each seceding state, there would be a monument to the women of the Confederacy. And this design by a woman, Belle Kinney, was proposed. Uh, in fact, only two of these were made, but of the mon monuments of other design were erected in another five states, and then there were many local monuments as well. And often the inscription on them was Jefferson Davis's opening tribute to women in his book, The Rise and the Fall of the Confederate Government. So what are some other places where monuments were erected? In the 1890s, Congress started acquiring Civil War battlefields as permanent war memorials. And so we have monuments uh, beginning to be erected very quickly in places like Gettysburg, Shiloh, Vicksburg. There are nearly 1,400 markers and monuments at Gettysburg alone, 400 of which are Confederate. And the Confederate ones came later. There's a Confederate well, there's a desire to place them at places where people were in the battle that kind of evolved. But in fact, it was in the 1960s that Confederate monuments at Gettysburg were erected by the states of Texas, Florida, South Carolina, and Georgia. The 70s, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And in 1982, a monument of the state of Tennessee at Gettysburg. There were also monuments at historic sites like Andersonville National Historic National Historic Site, which is now a memorial to all American prisoners of war throughout the nation's history. And many of the monuments there have the inscription, Death Before Dishonor. So I just picked this example of an Illinois monument by Charles Mulligan with the allegory of Columbia, or the state, gesturing toward the graves of the heroes. And children um, represent the future, Looking out, looking out over the graves, and then has this very weird granite figures on the two sides, which represent the aging soldiers reflecting on what has happened during the war. Reenactors at these sites have also become what we, we like to call mobile monuments in a way. <laughs> <laughs> they literally perform history, and now you know there are many, many people interested in, in reenactment. There are also what I think of as national monuments. The monuments on the Washington Mall to Lincoln and his, general, his greatest general, Grant, which are symbols of power and symbols of union. And then in um, the Confederate equivalent would be the row of monuments in Richmond's Monument Avenue to Jeff Davis, Robert E. Lee, and so forth. The Lincoln Memorial and the Grant Memorial were both dedicated in 1922. 
It's just because, in part, because it took so long to complete them to get, and these were paid for by uh, your tax dollars. I think $2 million was appropriated at one point for the Lincoln Memorial, which they were very elaborate plans. It was going to be much more elaborate than it actually is. It was going to be a great highway and all sorts of things. And there's a sculpture by um, Daniel Chester French. And it says on it, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. As we were talking a little bit about yesterday, you know, in, for the sake of reconciliation, it's about the stability of the Union. It's not really about the idea of slavery we discussed foremost in a monument like this. The Ulysses Grant Memorial took two decades for the artist Henry Merwin Schrady, who had won a competition uh, to build it. It's at the base of the Capitol. And it might be difficult to see here, but so he is on a high pedestal on his, on his horse, kind of in his characteristic slouch. But in addition, there are lions in the front, and there are uh, battle groups on each side. So there's a great deal of sculpture. And it faces the Lincoln Memorial across the mall. It was. Um, $250,000 was appropriated for that memorial. Finally, I wanted to ask about how these memorials continue to function since the war, and most especially, I, I find fascinating the Confederate ones. Are they just invisible ghosts that we walk by? Do they actually influence anybody? The uh, writer Stanford Levinson has written, all monuments are efforts to stop time, but history mocks such efforts. Statues can later generate discomfort or they can be used for new ideological purposes. So by the 1920s, really stood as this end of this era, that era of statue mania. But there have been these resurgences and these debates since. And with the civil rights movement came a new debate about what to do with them and, and uh, blacks uh, gaining power and things like city councils and politics and government and, and business. Um, now had greater clout to complain about the offensiveness of these monuments in their space. Um, and every time um, something would happen, there could be a debate about, should we spend the money to restore this Confederate soldier? And this is in Alexandria, Virginia. In fact, they did, they did put it back. <laughs> or if a highway is going to be built, should we move it? What should we do about it? Should we maintain it? And interestingly, these debates occurred. It was kind of a perfect tension, a perfect storm, because the preservation movement was really arising around the same time, so these two things came into conflict. Events on Monument Avenue in Richmond, the symbolic heart of the Confederacy, are the best example, perhaps, of, of one of these conflicts and what happened. There's this well of really colossal, five really, really colossal monuments to Confederate heroes, this being Robert E. Lee, which was commissioned from the French sculptor Mercier in 1890. And they were erected in an area that was an expansion area of the city. Then there are monuments to Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, Jefferson Davis, and a naval hero, naval hero named Matthew Murray, the last of which were dedicated in the late 1920s. And there they stood on change for many decades. But by the 1990s, in our new era, Richmond had a majority black consul. There were new attitudes about the meaning of these monuments. This is the Jeff Davis monument. And what had once been a sacred space was described as a street of shame, as a stigma upon the South, upon Richmond, which wanted to be part of the New South. Had many defenders, but these kinds of statements were also made. 
And so one solution that they came upon was a kind of weird one, but to decide to add something, not to destroy something, and to add a, um, an African um, model, an African-American hero of sorts. And uh, the solution that was chosen was to add a statue to the tennis player, Arthur Ashe. It was supposed to possibly be a temporary solution. Well, there may be more debate still about what will come, but right now, this Monument Avenue now has a, a new resident and a, a new um, dynamic. I just mentioned that in South Carolina, as in some other states, southern states, in the 50s and 60s, some states in a kind of act of defiance uh, raised the battle flag anew over their state houses or a modification of the flag. And that continued to be an issue. And I, I just add this because in um, 2000, NAACP announced a boy, boycott, threatened a boycott in um, South Carolina. And the proposal was to take it off the state house and to put it over the Confederate monument. So again, it's continuing to play this function. So it's not, a, it's much, not as an official spot, <laughs> I guess. It's not. Meantime, there are some efforts now. There's quite a bit of new sculpture, really, that makes an effort to make up for the absences of the past. And as uh, Gary Gallagher outlined in his book, Causes One Lost and Forgotten, we have things like the Ken Burns series and the movie Glory and there are a lot of different, and the anniversaries of the Civil War, a lot of different reasons why people would come back to interest, especially in the things like the 54th Regiment and African-American participation in the war. So in Washington, we have this um, monument dedicated in 1997, the African-American Civil War Memorial, which is um, stand in what's called the Shaw neighborhood. The neighborhood's been called Shaw for a long time, after Colonel Shaw, I believe. And it's right at the U Street Shaw metro stop. And a councilman who had actually seen the movie Glory, uh, Frank Smith, was one who really pushed to have it developed. And what's interesting is that and the sculptor, uh, Ed Hamilton, adopted a conventional style. He adopted the common soldier so that there's a response that uses somewhat the same forms. And here we have an infantryman, let's see, three infantrymen and a sailor on one side. And um, above there's an ideal head called the spirit of war. I don't have the back, but in the back there's a domestic group of a soldier saying farewell to his wife and children and parents. And around, on the wall around, are the names of African-Americans who served in the war. And there's a small museum. And then there are a few sort of neo-Confederate wacky things, I think. <laughs> I don't know anything about military history, but apparently a lot of people feel that General James Longstreet was really dissed for his role at, in the war, and they wanted to rewrite history by honoring him with a memorial, which was dedicated in 1998. But it's such a strange thing. I think Gary Gallagher says it looks like a carousel horse or something. <laughs> this has this very large figure. And uh, I don't know if it's what the vetting philosophy is at Gettysburg. <laughs> anyway, in other words, there's, there's still an interest on various sides for fighting these battles through monuments, which is fascinating. So when we come back from the break, I thought we could talk about 
some of these issues, like what what do we do and think about them today? And uh, I'll throw out one really interesting, modest proposal that actually Kirk pointed this out. Uh, Philip Kennicutt, a critic in the Washington Post, was writing about the clutter on the Washington Mall. What are we going to do? Everyone wants to have a monument to scout dogs and everything on the mall. And he said this. You could think about this over the break. <laughs> Rather than bicker over what new structures can be added to the space, let's focus on removing existing monuments and memorials as they reach the end of their useful lifespan. Healing is a process, and it should be a finite one. As the last veterans of a particular war pass on, that war's memorial should be retired. It should be respectfully dismantled. And maybe if it's in Washington, it could be re-erected elsewhere, but we'll see. <laughs> but the unbuilding of the World War II, the Korean War memorials, wouldn't just make room for new grass and forestation. They could be important public spectacles, the last stage in the healing of war wounds. So if there's an unbuilding as well as a building. I'd like to know what areas you think research could be developed in, because you've come from so many diverse interests that it might be really interesting, and then talk about this. Thank you so much.